The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Frank Latuka, Michael Bolick, The Joe Q Car Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Jim Wright, Will Harris, and Craig. Politics, 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 politics. Hello and welcome, everybody. Oh, God. Oh, oh. so full. So full. Day after Thanksgiving, November 27, 2020. All right. We all know, right, that the best version of gravy is after it's been in the fridge. And it's just a gelatinous chunk. You just take a chunk of that slippery son of a bee sting. And just plop it on whatever goulash that you're you're pulling out of the, the, the fridge. Oh, geez. A little turkey, a little mashed potato, a little corn. Underrated element of the after Thanksgiving reheated plate. The corn. Gives a little bit of a crunch. Not a lot stays crunchy after it's been in the fridge. Corn does. Just saying. We've got a a nice little show to uh, to to digest by. In fact, I've got some other things that you can digest along with this. We're gonna have a great interview with writer Matthias Shapiro. You might know him better by his Twitter handle at polymath p o l i. M-A-T-H, he's also got a Substack, but he does uh, a lot of really, really good numbers research on a lot of things, but most notably, recently, it's COVID. So we are going to talk a little bit about public policy and COVID, what the numbers say, and maybe a few trends that will, I don't know if it'll make you feel better or worse, but hopefully we can kind of focus on the numbers a little bit. That's uh, uh, later. That's, that's, that's you know, uh, something that we can chew on for the rest of the weekend. A little heavier, right? But I'm going to front load it with uh, some, some, some more fun stuff. Well, I don't know how fun it is for some of you, but oh, we got the mailbag. That's going to be good. And I have an idea that popped into my head that I can't get rid of. And I'm going to lay it out for you guys. Because if this trans, if, if this happens, if this comes to pass, it will be all we will talk about. Indeed. I'm going to lay out why there may very well, within the next 24 months, be a race, an actual election between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Donald Trump Jr. And I even get a little appetizer for you, right? A little, 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 little lamuse bouche just to, just to whet your appetite. Here's something to think about. 
is Biden going to have a virtual inauguration? Somebody on on the 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 politics live stream, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young, made uh, uh, the or asked me the question, who's going to have a bigger uh, a bigger audience, Trump or Biden for the inauguration? I started thinking about it. I'm like, wait, is Biden going to have a crowd? He's the anti-COVID guy, the be safe guy, the everybody wear a mask guy. Is he really going to encourage people in January to come and gather? He had a virtual convention. He had a virtual victory speech. Does he have does he have cars on the National Mall? He's he's Joe Biden car man. He's honking. Everybody's honking their approval like they were when he, when he when he uh, declared victory. I don't know. Something to think about. Is Joe Biden's inauguration going to be virtual? You 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 keep noodling over that. But first. This is what is possible when everyday people come together in the collective realization that all our actions, no matter how small or how large, are powerful, worthwhile, and capable of lasting change. Imagine the life you want to have, one with a great job, a beautiful home, a perfect family. You can have it. Imagine the country you want to live in, one with true equal opportunity, where hard work pays off and justice is served with compassion and without partiality. You can have it. Imagine a world where the evils of communism and radical Islamic terrorism are not given a chance to spread, where heroes are celebrated and the good guys win. You can have it. All right, all right, all right, all right. I know I'm already annoying you because a few people that I've already told this have just rolled their eyes and said, Justin, we're not even officially out of the 2020 election. Like, why are you throwing what would be an absolute hairdryer in the bathtub of our, our, our lessening political landscape? Why are we even dreaming about something like this? Donald Trump Jr. versus AOC. And besides, how would it even happen, right? Come on. What are we even talking about here? Donald Trump Jr. is not a politician. AOC is in the House. She literally just won her House seat back. In in She just got reelected for the first time in this election. I can't help it. It's just how I'm built. I just have to think about these things. I just love the. I love them. I love them. Don't stand in the way of my love. Big. Loud. Ugly. Fights. Mm. Let me walk you through this one. Week ago, today, had J.D. Durkin on. 
don't know why I'm obsessed with asking J.D. Durkin if uh, AOC is going to primary Chuck Schumer. I assume he knows. But he made mention that it would be less likely that AOC would primary Schumer. And the real move to watch would be Kirsten Gillibrand, the junior senator from New York, getting into the Biden administration. That would open up that seat and quite possibly it would be AOC moving into that Senate seat. All right. So I did a little digging on this. Let's just see if anybody else is talking about it. The only story I was really able to find was uh, recent, November 20th, a New York Daily News story. Headline, Senator Gillibrand has yet to buy another New York home, fueling speculation of interest in the Biden administration. So this is a rumor that is getting traction because if I'm going to take a wild guess, this is a rumor that this is a done deal or this is likely to happen. But the New York Daily News can't just report a rumor. I mean, what are they? The New Yorker? You know, the New Yorker can just write fan fiction. The New York Daily News, I guess, has has some some more respect for itself. So they need to find some kind of news peg. And the news peg they find is that Senator Gillibrand has not bought a New York home since she sold her last one. Now, she spends most of her time in Washington, D.C. anyway. That's where she's making her... her most common residents. But that's what they do to write this story. The news peg is she hasn't bought another house. Okay. So then let's say that at least for these New York Daily News reporters who want to get something on the record before the dominoes really start to fall, this is real. So that means Cuomo could name AOC. And let's answer that question. Why on earth would Chris Cuomo, it doesn't seem like like Cuomo and AOC are, are, are super friends, right? They don't move in the same circles. Why would Cuomo put AOC in the Senate? Well, you'd put AOC in the Senate because you don't want a gigantic party fracturing fight between Schumer and AOC. And Schumer and Cuomo are certainly, I don't know, their, their personal relationship, but ideologically and in terms of old New York power, you know, in, that are still relevant, Cuomo, the names Cuomo and Schumer are two of them. So... Let's say that happens. AOC gets named. She goes to the Senate. That means, I believe, and somebody can correct me, 
best of my knowledge by way of how this works, and, and this actually happened with Gillibrand, she would then face a special election for the remainder of that term that started in 2018. She would have to run in 2022. AOC would defend that seat in a special election in 2022. So let's say she's not primarying Schumer. She's running as the incumbent. The question then becomes, for the New York State Republican Party, that they'd need somebody to run against her. Now, the the interesting part about a Schumer-AOC battle would be the question, can AOC play outside of New York City? Can she play on the island, both Staten and Long? So the islands, right? (laughs) The, The places in New York that are more red than you would think. Can she play upstate? Rochester, Syracuse. Can she play in Western New York, in Buffalo or the surrounding environs there? Places that are far more like Pennsylvania and Ohio than they are New York City. If you were trying to make sure that you could take one Senate seat and, in one fell swoop, damage a rising golden child from the progressive left, you'd need to run somebody that wasn't just, you know, some jamoke from Albany, which is usually who the New York Republicans run. Just some state senator that no one's ever heard of. It's like the like the ding-dongs that Hillary Clinton ran over. You could run a man who, unlike his father, is still a resident of New York State, just bought a house with Kimberly Guilfoyle out on the Hamptons. Somebody for whom is far more interested in party politics than his father. Remember, Donald Trump, as we speak, is still having his loose confederation of lawyers uh, uh, out here on Twitter saying, oh, well, maybe uh, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue aren't fighting hard enough for the president in Georgia and we should boycott that race. Who came in and put out that fire? Donald Trump Jr. came out on Twitter and said, hey, uh, no, no, knock that off. Everybody fight for the president. We believe we will win. But we also, we being the GOP, the Republicans want to win the Senate. And so in that case, all of MAGA nation that is in Georgia needs to vote for Leffler and Purdue. That's Donald Trump Jr. doing that. He is the one that's tight with a element of the Trump-centric Republican machine that is, 
I think, interested in taking over some of that power structure. Charlie Kirk, Richard Grinnell. These are people that I think would be more likely to stay around and have a larger say in the direction of the Republican Party. If you wanted a chance for Junior to step out of his father's shadow, I can't imagine a higher stakes stage than him bringing home the head of AOC. I mean, look how much AOC was mentioned during those debates. That's the real fight. The real fight wasn't with Biden. The fight that the the Trump campaign wanted to have was with the progressive left, and nobody represents that right now more than AOC because Bernie's on the wane. No. It's possible, right? Watch somebody write in and just be like, no, you're an idiot. It, it absolutely can't happen for the following reasons. But if AOC gets that Gillibrand senatorial seat and then has to face a special election, to me, it is eminently possible that her opponent would be Donald Trump Jr. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed it. If you'd like to write into this show, all you got to do is head to the email client of your choice and type in theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Bo, uh, uh, responding to a question that I asked on the PX3 Extra, I asked people to write in their grodiest pardons. So we could talk about because Michael Flynn got pardoned yesterday, so I asked for the grodiest pardons of all time. Bo writes, if we're talking about the most unsavory ones, then three immediately come to mind. Mark Rich, which was Bill Clinton, Scooter Libby, George W. Bush, and Richard Nixon, which was, of course, his vice president, Ford. However, let's not forget such gems as the Iran-Contra 6, George Steinbrenner, Armand Hammer, uh, which was for illegal campaign contributions, and he also made a uh, donation to George Bush Sr. at the same time, and the father of actor Army Hammer. True story. And then, of course, Bill Clinton pardoned his brother Roger. Sheriff Joe Arpaio was a Trump special and an honorable mention to Nixon commuting the sentence of Jimmy Hoffa. Jason writes, I get how each state does local and statewide elections differently, but why isn't something like this, na like, a, sorry, like a national thing, like voting for president, Something that is standard and nationwide normalized from state to state. Because, Jason, no matter how much time has made the United States into a top-down national entity, the reality is, is that we are a collection of states. And those states have rights. And the states determine how they will proportion their electoral votes. So it's weird. I mean, would it be 
would there be a, a support, especially now, for some kind of uh, uh, regularization of stuff? Yeah, but then you're getting into a fight with each local state house and governor and, you know, government. John writes, I'm a Canadian who came to PX3 via the Ice Cream Social podcast. Well, really, Ice Cream Social to raise the dead to PX3, but who's counting? And generally speaking, I find your content to be a good counterbalance to news coverage I get elsewhere. I think you hit a overview of it all kind of tone that's enlightening. Find you, generally speaking, well-reasoned. Even if I don't necessarily agree with all your takes, I enjoy your show a lot. That said, and I'm going to go into the angry email voice. Uh, John, I don't know if you're familiar with the angry email voice, but but feel free. Whenever you want to send me an angry email, you can request the angry email voice. I'm going to give it to you here. That said, on last Wednesday's show, you crossed a line, sir. Calling the good boys of Sum 41 a one-hit wonder? How dare you? I submit that yes, they are the biggest band in the world, and certainly their biggest breakthrough in the U.S. were from an earlier work. But to lump them in with Wheatus, the Bahamen, and the Ataris, that's a bridge too far, sir! I'll accept your apology on behalf of my countrymen. John, I, I, I hate to be an American-centric Yankee doodle dandy, but on this, the real Thanksgiving weekend, I'm gonna have to be that guy. I'm sure that between episodes of Little Mosque on the Prairie and uh, Hockey Night in Canada, you guys had all the time in the world to enjoy the tremendous, voluminous catalog of Sum 41. Why? I'm sure between episodes of Kim's Convenience, while you're talking with your family, probably fetishizing some 13-year-old left-winger from Saskatoon who's going to play in the juniors next year. You probably just discuss all the great songs from Sum 41 that aren't Fat Lip. Well, guess what? Down here in the good old U.S. of A., over the Screaming Eagles, all we can hear is one song. And it was the one where they pretended to be the Beastie Boys. And then the rest of the album, they didn't do it. And they never did it again. And we all just kind of wanted more Beastie Boys at the time. And Sum 41 was close enough when they did their Beastie Boys impression on that song. And and then that was it. The only other thing I knew about Sum 41 is that the lead singer married Avril Lavigne. Think married, I don't know, dated Avril Lavigne. Now she had a catalog. So I will not apologize. Down here, they're one-hit wonder. Sorry. Bruce writes, Hey, Jerbs. What's the longest amount of time it's taken for a sitting president or any presidential candidate to concede? I tried to do a quick Google search, but I couldn't find anything on the first page. Off the top of my head, I would say it's probably Gore. You know, Gore went 37 days before conceding. So I think modern... 
rubric that's probably the the longest. Matt, gotta agree with Ken hardcore. Uh, uh, this was from uh, the the newsletter. Uh, uh, the beginning of the week, uh, one of our greatest emailers, who's Canadian as well, Ken, one of our Canadian uh, readers, wrote a big thing about how uh, uh, he's kind of, now that it's sunk in that Trump is on his way out, he is is now kind of like reevaluating exactly how much of a bubble he's been in. So Matt writes to that. I'm as anti-Trump as any self-respecting conservative who cares about character and competence. Shots fired. I know I've been reading too much of the dispatch. But I don't think that nearly half of America that voted for him did so out of racism. It makes me really sad that I'll roughly term the liberal woke media bubble seems to have decided that that's just a thing. Not only does it make people who are in that bubble fearful and resentful of their fellow Americans, but it also feeds into the siege mentality on the right. Down-ballot races aside, conservatives are hated by the mainstream media and culture, and they know it, constantly hearing that the only reason someone would vote for Trump is that they're racist just reinforces the same mentality that said, well, I may not like Trump, but at least he'll fight for me. Can't we all just be adults and admit that people have policy views that, uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we hate each other? Uh, Matt, I, I would say... Um no, no, I, I don't think that we've proven on any level that we can be adults. <laughs> Mark writes, I just listened to the PX3 Extra and figured I'd send along some thoughts on the situation of Republicans going after Reverend uh, Warnock's sermon in faith. So one of the things that we're following in the Georgia race, of course, is uh, uh, Reverend Warnock being a famous preacher in Atlanta. And uh, conservatives are digging through his old speeches because they very much want to make him into a Jeremiah Wright style radical. One of those clips was him saying that you cannot serve both God and the military. And the, the response from liberals was, wait a minute, I thought a man's faith was out of bounds. You guys kept saying that about Amy Coney Barrett. Why is it different? Why is it different now? So Mark from Georgia, writes in, I grew up in a conservative white evangelical church. Black churches were portrayed as weak theologically and simply politically motivated. Republican evangelicals are perfectly fine with saying the faith of Amy Barrett is off limits, but the faith of Warnock is free game for attack. As an aside, his message of not being able to serve God and the military is pretty lukewarm and wouldn't raise many eyebrows in churches around the world or throughout history. The mixing of religion and nationalism in America makes it seem controversial to those in the Christian nationalist movement. I am always interested when my strange background is applicable to the larger conversation, so I hope this gives you insight into the dynamics at play. Uh, indeed it does. And I think the, the issue more than is, is Warnock Jeremiah right? That's, that's really where Kelly, Le or, uh, uh, yeah, Kelly Leffler wants to go. Steve writes, sorry to report that as somebody who grew up not far from Oxford, I have never heard of anyone throwing up the X. <laughs> I forget whether or not this was an extra or, or a, a free episode, but I, I was saying that, that Oxford should give DMX a honorary degree and they should make it a cultural thing that they like throw up the X 
Oxford X. X going to give it to you. So apparently they, they don't do that, uh, which whatever. And I don't know if it's a coincidence, but they also screwed up their vaccine with AstraZeneca. And now it may or may not have actually proved its efficacy. Uh, related? Up to you, dear, dear listener. Finally, Aaron writes, following up on your mailbag from last week about Trump running for Congress to be speaker, you don't have to be in Congress to be elected speaker. Trump could single-handedly flip the House if he starts campaigning today to be speaker in 2022, so long as the Republicans can turn out enough support in the midterms to flip the House. Now, I hate Trump with the passion of a thousand sons, but I admit that he could do more to mobilize the national base of people upset that he lost than anyone else in the soon-to-be opposition party. Interesting food for thought. The Young American at gmail.com is where you send your emails. As we recover from our Thanksgiving holiday, it is uh, time to look toward Christmas. Time to look toward New Year, of course. Right after New Year's Day, I'm heading on out to the Peach State, baby. Georgia. Speaking of Reverend Warnock, speaking of Kelly Leffler, speaking of laughing your ass off, Speaking of David Perdue, I'm going to be out there covering that election, and I only do it the way that I am able to finance an independent trip out to Georgia, hotel, rental car, food, the whole bit, that I'm able to bring you guys boots on the ground reporting is because you support me at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Get that custom RSS feed at any level. The episodes come out just a little bit faster on the Patreon than they do to the regular feed by a couple hours. And, of course, if you're at the $3 level, you get two bonus episodes each and every week. That's a good deal. Head on over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our guest today is Matthias Shapiro. He can be found on Twitter at Polymath, P-O-L-I-M-A-T-H. He also has a great newsletter on Substack at the same name. Two notes here. Number one, this interview was recorded uh, a week ago. So be aware that if anything statistically has happened within the last seven days, it won't be covered in this interview. And it was recorded while I was still on political vacation. So the sound is not terrible, but it is a little different. So adjust to that. All that being said, let's welcome him in right now. Welcome to the show, Matthias. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Now, I, I, I don't know how I ran across you. Uh, I, it was likely on Twitter. You are, you are a, a, a prolific tweeter and uh, uh, certainly a, a tweet thread artist, but uh, you are polymath there as well as on your Substack, obviously. But I think you were recreating maybe something from your newsletter about COVID. 
and mm -hmm. specifically your evolving thoughts on it. So let's start kind of chronologically as everybody else <clears throat> is having all this stuff happen around them. You, as uh, uh, somebody with that, that's mathematically minded, are watching some of these lockdown strategies and specifically contact tracing. Uh, where were your initial thoughts on what would be the most effective way to curtail this? So uh, that kind of has that goes all the way back to like where, when this started, right? Yeah. Um, and and all of my all of my watching and tracking of COVID is based on um, not not the like official CDC numbers, but numbers that are coming from um, organizations that are sort of independently tracking this stuff. I've actually found that to be a little bit more reliable than than the other stuff. And one of the difficulties with this is that we had so such poor tracking at the beginning of this that yeah. we had we kind of had to throw up our hands and be like, I have no idea what strategies worked or didn't work because we weren't able to track anything very effectively. Um, and so the, you go from that, that's, you know, the March, April time frame. And then we go into the summer time frame where we've got a surge in the southern states, Texas, and Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Arizona, California. And the if it wasn't for California, then it would look like, oh, these are all red states um, and they don't like, they don't, they've been, they're not good at holding things down, right? Like their, their yeah. strategy of, of, um, of avoiding lockdowns or trying to get out of lockdowns isn't working. But the problem is that you, you get to add California into that mix. And California is a weird one because California is actually, all those states that I've mentioned are running along the southern border of the United States. And California is also, but California is so big, it's not one region, especially from no. a COVID perspective. The, the thing that, we all, that I've noticed that is so powerful is that COVID hits regions. It doesn't just, it doesn't hit states. It doesn't, it's certainly not hitting the country as a whole. It hits regions of the country. And so when you see like the United States numbers going up and down, I find that to be almost less than useless because yeah. it's, because the numbers will go up and, and it looks like, um, it, it looks like, like they're doing it as in the country as a whole. And so people are like, Oh, well, the United States is doing a poor job of this when in fact it's like, Oh no, 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 this is surging in a very specific region, but not, but it's really not surging in this other region. And so if you, if you cut California in half, and you just look at the lower half of California, the Southern California looked like Texas all summer yeah. long like yeah. almost exactly in the same curve structure. And then Northern California looked like Oregon and, and Washington. Yeah. And if you separated it out that way, then you're like, oh, okay. So that means the mitigations, the lockdowns that they had in California don't seem to be doing much because you yeah. compare Southern California to Texas and they're about at the same curve, even though Texas is like, let's open up. And California is like, no, let's not. Um, and so that's that's instructive as we're moving in towards this, what I think is, everybody's calling it the second wave, and that's true-ish. Um, the first- I, I, I feel like that that in and of itself was like next to masks, the like Twitter equivalent of a culture war of like, what is a second wave? Like, right. was, was, was the wave that happened- during in, in in the southeast and through through uh, that you were just describing through the summer was that a second wave and no it was not it was not the <laughs> first wave like there there was this a, a whole little firefight of, of of deciding exactly what was what but I think we can we can say this this is the the fall winter whatever sure. like right yeah 
And 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 the 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 big one that that I was watching is like I'm watching New York all like they got hit real hard in the spring. And then they seemed awesome. Like everything was going great in New York all summer long and into the yeah. early fall. And now and and so much so that a lot of people, including myself, were like, well, maybe they're protected from this, right? Maybe they got enough people got sick, they've got a herd immunity, and that there that's why this isn't rising again. But that seems like a plausible explanation. It's not. It wasn't. <laughs> then there was, and, and, and one of the things that I really try to encourage people is like, let's not be too hard on anybody trying to propose solutions because yes. all we know is what we know now. Like everything's going to seem obvious in two months, but but we can't. We don't know what we don't know what's going to be obvious later on. Um, but now we're seeing those areas. Um, Illinois got hit. Michigan got hit. New York, uh, New, the Northeast got hit, and and those it looks now like that did not protect them from this, this surge that's happening now. Right. So, so, so the fact, the fact that they all were ravaged during the initial outbreak of this specifically that, uh, you know, a cellar corridor of mm-hmm. uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, uh, Massachusetts, that this is, this is not something that, that now, however many months later is, is seeming to provide them much of a halo of protection. It do- it doesn't seem that way. Yeah. And and the uh, now the the one caveat to that is that the places that are really getting like really just the worst numbers are places that never had a surge. Yeah, like the plains, the plain states did not get hit by this the first time around. the the only The only state in the Midwest that didn't get hit was Wisconsin, and it's getting hit the worst. The only state in the southern border that didn't get hit was New Mexico. And it's getting hit the worst. And so like yeah. there does seem to be like a, a little bit, I would say maybe a 20% range. That's like, if this is the first time you're getting hit, you're getting hit harder than yeah. the states that already got hit. So it's, it's, there's not a protection from getting hit first, but, but if this is the first time you're getting hit, you're getting hit harder. So it's, it's complicated. Um, but, but we do see some patterns there. Uh, you said in, uh, at the beginning of all this that you found independent uh, uh, trackers to be a little bit more accurate uh, than the CDC numbers. W- when you say that, what specifically are you looking at in terms of raw numbers? So the uh, the, the place that I go um, that I really like and and after the fair warning is I actually worked with them is is uh, the COVID tracking project. Okay, um, and they were they were looking for volunteers to help track coronavirus uh infections on a state-by-state level because at that time because cdc didn't even did wasn't even close to keeping up until the summer right and um in in terms of in terms of providing good data so we ended up having people and we would go state by state and we'd look at the state numbers and it was it, the thing that was really nice about it was uh how transparent and and continues to be how transparent they are they're clear in their definitions. All their definitions of, of how they're tracking stuff is, is out in the open for anybody to read. Um, we had people. We had a few people who were tasked with specifically problematic states. For yeah. example, California's data structure is a mess. There, <laughs> oh, it's it's really it's really a mess, and it's to a point where Gavin Newsom. I mean. I, there's just lots of stuff I don't like about him, but to his credit, he basically threw up his hands and was like, counties do the best you can because yeah. as a state, we just don't know, like we're just having trouble pulling our stuff together. And, and there have been a lot of bumpy data out of California. 
Um, but, but we, you know, the COVID tracking project basically had one person who was like, this person is tasked with California. He's going to go county by county because we think those are better numbers. Yeah. You know, and so the, they're, they're very careful and they're very detailed in what they do. They're also, their, their deaths number looks lower because very early on, they're like, we are only going to deal with confirmed COVID deaths. There are a lot of deaths where people think that might have been COVID. It looked like COVID, yeah. uh, but we but we didn't get a test, so we can't confirm. And and I I think I think that's perfectly reasonable. Like the New York Times has a higher death count yeah. than the COVID tracking project because they're like we're going to include probable deaths in there, and I have no problem with that. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But but COVID tracking project I think is a little bit more conservative in how they report their numbers. Um, just a little, just a little bit more careful. Um, and I, and I, I personally like that. Yeah. I mean, I think like, like you said, there's, there's going to be books and books and books <laughs> written about this that will have a lot more of a fine tooth comb through it. But, but right now, if, if all we're that. doing right now is, you know, I guess from even like a journalistic point of view, that's just saying, okay, we're, these are the only thing that's going to happen. Let's say down the road we find out that there were uh, other things that it wasn't COVID, but it was a, a, a similar disease like that, that we can we can at least know that these people actually got tests for it. We, we will know more later. Right. Two and three yeah. months later, we'll know more things. Um, but but this disease moves so fast that it is valuable to know something. Yeah. Today. Right. <laughs> even even if we know it's going to be revised next week. Knowing what's happening today and how it changed from last week is still valuable. So one of the things that I really enjoyed in your writing was uh, uh, that that you did something uh, rare for humans and almost uh, 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 impossible on Twitter. And that's uh, to talk about how you were wrong and, and your opinion had changed. And it was specifically about contact tracing uh, yes. that, that initially you had written uh, about how this was like uh, maybe a big moment, a, a moment of civic pride where we could all come together on one thing that uh, uh, would help save lives and, and register ourselves and, 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 you know, maybe build right. into some of these hooks that were in yeah. iOS and Android. Uh, and this would all come together. Not only has it not, but now you are, are, are uh, far more bearish on, on the concept in general. Can you explain that? So there's, uh, I want to differentiate between two kinds of contact tracing. The first one is, is electronic contact tracing, um, which I, my field of work is, has been mobile development for many years. Yeah. Um, and I, I've never really liked electronic contact tracing, even though that's what South Korea, part of what South Korea did. And, and um, even South Korea, they only used electronic contact tracing to reinforce their person-to-person interviews contact yeah. tracing so it was like they do the interview and then they'd grab the person's data and be like was he lying to us and that that's kind of how they yeah. how they sorted things out and, and let me and let me let me just pause right here just so so people if uh, if they're not familiar with some of what we're talking about electronic contact tracing at least in in what, what they've built into ios and android is a randomized bluetooth so your bluetooth is always going and it is saying <laughs> okay well we're pinging all these randomized numbers, you don't know, it's not GPS, uh, so they're not tracking you specifically, but if you right. then get a positive uh, a diagnosis, you can hit a button that says, oops, I got the vid, and then everybody in that randomized, uh, that randomized pinged with you now gets 
a, a notice. It is certainly imperfect because Bluetooth can go through walls and stuff like that. But uh, it is yeah. at least a, a, a stepping stone there. So, so you said yeah. electronic contact tracing. Useful I, I, if it's part of a thing, but but maybe not uh, a cure all the way that that we might suspect it is. The the theory behind it was was always a bit shaky. It was basically like, oh, how do we how can we tell somebody if they were in a subway car with someone who had COVID or if they were in a restaurant yeah. with someone? Like that was a theory, but in practice, what it ended up meaning is that you get an elevator. And every time you go past a floor where somebody's waiting in an elevator, your Bluetooth hits their Bluetooth. So it's like, you don't even know if you were in the same room. It's, it's, it's very, very, uh, it's a very coarse metric against which to judge things. But I had the thing that I was hopeful for and I thought possibly could work was, um, was something the state of Washington had put in place uh, where they, they said, okay, we want you to, you go to a restaurant and we want to get your name and your phone number, your email address. And that way, if there's somebody who was in the restaurant who had COVID and was in an infectious period, then we can contact everybody and let them know and have them get, have them get tested and that sort of thing. Yeah. And when I heard that, like I liked the idea and here's why I hate electronic contact tracing because it's the sort of thing that government always wanted to do anyway which is just track you and see who yeah. you're near, right? Yeah. It's the sort of thing that 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 um, uh, at Google and Apple always wanted to do anyway. And now we're giving them like a hook, a way to do it and, and permission to do it. And those sorts of things, once you turn them off, they, they, once you turn them on, they never get turned off, right? Yeah. And so the pandemic will come and go, but they got their little claws into you. And that, and that I think is why, I mean, cause that, that Bluetooth solution that they wound up building in, which is imperfect, certainly was, I think it was an MIT research paper, but it was like the, like their Apple and Google's way of saying, no, we'll do this because we don't want the government to come to us and say, now we're going to track everybody via GPS. And certainly I think those that want to solve the problem as fast as possible might look at that and right. say, no, 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 we should be GPS tracing. But I totally agree with you. Once right. once you do that, it's going to be really, really hard to say, oh, no, we can't do it for a, a murderer. And then once it's there, then it's going to be the drug dealer. And then it's, if it's the it's, drug dealer, then it's the, the, the possible deadbeat dad. And now right. we kind of go down, down, down the line there. Right. And, and so like, I, I actually liked the giving out your name and number and yeah. email and stuff because it was, it was opt in. You could always give a fake name. Um, it was, it was work for both the people who were going and the restaurants. Right. And, and writing stuff down, like it's a thing. It's another point of friction that everybody's going to be eager to get rid of. And yeah. so, and, and, and so it makes it very hard to turn back on at a later date, right? People are going to want to stop doing that as soon as possible. So we'll do it now when, when, when there's a lot of spread and right, like, and everybody can go in and it, it, re it requires trust on every side of the equation. So I thought, yeah, this might, this might be a good idea. Right. And it was a little bit embarrassing because I wrote about this <laughs> in a, in a, in a moderately conservative magazine that I thought this was a good idea before we even went to print, they had canned it because the oh, restaurant, no. uh, the restaurant associations were like, uh, uh, not going to do it. The ACLU was like, this is a terrible idea. And, and the fact of the matter is that I, I deeply misjudged um, Americans <laughs> and, and, and I don't think it's in a bad way. I, I am absolutely like, willing. I am a, I got a master's degree in technology and I work for a tech, a big tech company. 
and and I have this idea that I'm pretty relaxed with how I let my data out. I probably yeah. let more data about me out there than I should. I'm pretty relaxed about that, and I'm I'm pretty comfortable with it. Um, and I thought, well, maybe everybody is. And I think I really just misjudged my fellow Americans with how comfortable with that. And I don't think that's bad. I don't think it, people should be more like me. But the fact of the matter is, if people aren't comfortable with this, it's not going to work. We shouldn't try to force people to. We shouldn't try to force them to be more comfortable with something like this, and we shouldn't try to force them to to change who they are, their culture of skepticism. Like th that that's the sort of thing. If you wanted to change it, it's going to take five to ten years, and we don't have that kind of time. So just and, accept and, that it's not going to happen. And that's something that I feel like. Uh, we can we can pivot from here because what I've enjoyed about uh, uh, your thoughts on this have been similar to mine in that we need to be designing public policy for the world we have. If you yes. as a politician are just going on television and throwing up your hands and saying, people, why aren't you following my perfect plan? <laughs> then right. you are a bad leader. Like that is yeah. that is failed leadership. That is not, you know, uh, uh, that that is that is nothing else other than that. I mean, the only time that I can remember uh, people just pleading on television for people to do something is, you know, when I, when I grew up in Florida and the governor would be telling people who lived in unsafe homes for which they couldn't rescue <laughs> to like, please right. leave. But beyond that, in a situation like this and granted. There's going to be a lot of wrong paths. There's going to be a lot right. of steps that are taken that might not be uh, uh, effective. We shouldn't necessarily uh, uh, hammer on on people who make uh, mistakes. And and you know I've I've uh, uh, I've tried to give Cuomo a, a little bit more of a break. Uh, but yeah. but I think that that there are there are there are good public policy that now eight months into this we can start to to look at. Uh, and then there's failed public policy that we should just say, like, hey, look, we tried it. Somebody tried it. Let's let's go forward. So what would you say is seems to be effective public policy in America? Um, Do we even know? Well, okay. Is that even knowable? So, so there's the, the I'm, not to be like pedantic, but the problem is like the question is, like, what is effective? It, uh, do we think that effective equals fewer covid cases? Because there are things that you can do that will give you fewer COVID cases, but the amount of energy that goes into doing them might not even make it worth it, right? Yeah. Because because there, if you like, if you lower your, like, I think New York's a great example. New York City is a great example. The they are going like completely nuts trying to be like, okay, we're going to implement these policies and they're going to reduce COVID cases, and I think it probably will reduce COVID cases, maybe ten percent. But if it shatters their economy, if it makes, if it causes 500,000 people to move out of the state yeah, and it reduces cases by 10%, that's not worth it. Right. Like yeah. I, in my view, now, if it reduced cases by 50%, then that might be a good go, but it, but like, you're going to get, there's, there's a certain amount of benefit that's worth it. And, and past that point, if you're not getting results for like really hardcore beat down lockdown policies, then maybe they aren't worth it. Um, I, what I, this is a guess and yeah. I could totally be wrong. Uh, but what I'm thinking right now is that when all is said and done, you're probably going to end up with 
the difference between a place like Michigan um, and a place like Florida. And I use these two places very specifically because New York, I, I don't want to use New York as my like, everything was really bad there. Why couldn't they stop it? Because yeah. they really did. They got crushed right off the bat, right? And and it was that was really hard. That sucked. Um, I don't want to blame anybody for that, but but like Michigan and Florida are about the same size, or well, they're not, but Florida's a lot bigger. But but popul- they've got population density that are they're fairly similar, right? They're, they're good comparisons. And Michigan has had a, a, a really um, a governor who really believes that public policy can solve this problem. Yeah. And Florida has has a governor who believes let's open things up and let make let people make their own decisions, right? So I think. They're, they, when all is said and done, in a year from now, I think their COVID numbers are going to be within ten percent of each other. Okay, right. But the difference is that in Florida, you don't have. They're not fining people for not wearing masks. Their restaurant businesses, like their restaurants, are recovering. Right, they're moving towards recovery. Um, and and without all of this overbearing having to sue the government to open up churches and all this sort of thing. Yeah. And they, they might end up a little bit worse, but not so much worse that they had to, that the, the population is living in fear or worrying about like worrying about mask policies or, or canceling Thanksgiving or like all of these other things don't seem to be making so much of a difference that we should be canceling schools. Um, and that that's, it's, I'm, 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 I'm from Seattle, Washington. Yeah. And I'm currently visiting my mom in Georgia and it's a little bit weird because some things are very much the same. I mean, I go to an, into a, into a grocery store and I would say masks are about the same in Seattle as they are in Georgia, which I did not expect, but the, but a lot of the, the, the overall economy seems unchanged in Georgia. Whereas in Washington is absolutely day and night, right? Yeah. Like you go to a mall in Washington and ain't nobody there, right? An outdoor mall. Yeah. Um, there's one by my house and I go and it is maybe 20% capacity. I mean, it's just like these stores are dying. Yeah. And one of the crazy things, and, and, and this is um, one thing that I think is an absolutely misunderstood piece of this is that Washington has a culture of caution. The people there are more careful uh, than the people in Georgia are. And I think that has contributed to the fact that they have lower cases. And you get a lot of people who are mixing things up, who are like, well, Washington's locking things down and that why, that's why they have more case, uh, that's why they have fewer cases. And I honestly do not believe that's true. I think, and yeah. as someone from Washington, I think it's because the people have, are, are extremely anxious and they like, I haven't had anybody in my house since March. Yeah. Right. And that and that is not the not that's not the norm for the United States. Um, and it, it works, but it's hard. Right. And a lot of people don't like doing it, but they but they feel like they should be doing it. Um, that's you're not going to turn Georgia into Washington. You're yeah. not going to turn Wisconsin into Washington. It's not it's those are they're different people. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think you see it, you see that, that this idea of this culture, um, a, and, and it's almost like a culture of intimacy and closeness. It's a culture of familial closeness, it's a culture of community closeness. I think that's a big reason why uh, COVID has been hitting black communities 
and Hispanic communities is because they have a more intimate familial culture. They tend to live in intergenerational households more than more than that. That I think is do. a huge element. I mean, to to, to mm-hmm. me, if if you were to just study COVID by two vectors, multi generational homes and extreme weather that forces people inside, I feel like we'd be able to very effectively like trace this uh, in a way that that we we have not yet. Because to me, it's it's not like. Everyone's like, oh, my God, it's so crazy that in all these southern states, everybody started getting COVID during the summer. It's like, yeah, it's hot as hell. And the only place that where it's bearable is inside with air conditioning. Oh, my God, all these northern states are getting it during the winter. Yeah, it's cold. They want to be inside right. with the heat. And it's going to be worse in places where you're in intergenerational homes. And now you're getting not only more people sick, but also more likely elderly people sick because a multi-generational home often uh, uh, contains seniors. So I, 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 I wonder why some of that has gotten lost in the sauce a little bit. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the interesting things that I discovered fairly recently was I was looking at COVID cases across Europe, right? Yeah. And I ended up looking, I was trying to compare that to 2018, we had a pretty substantial flu epidemic. Uh, basically, we 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 had, we guessed wrong about which flu strains were going to yeah. be popular. Right, popular. We're gonna hit, we're gonna hit people, yeah. and so Just uh, all uh, the rage, uh, flu mania, <laughs> sweeping the nation. <laughs> uh, so we basically just misfired on the vaccine, right? Yeah. Um, and so I'm looking at that across Europe, and what's really what was really interesting to me was that the countries in Europe that are getting hit the hardest by COVID every year, they get hit the hardest by the flu. Yeah. And it's, and it's not like one of them has better flu policy. Nobody's locking down for the flu, but still certain countries get hit harder. And the, I think it all gets summed up in the joke that I've seen about how, um, it, it, the, in, in Europe, the, uh, uh, the European CDC, is recommending that people stay two meters away from each other in order to reduce the spread of COVID. And the Finns are like, why so close? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, because just like in Finland, there's just a, there's not a culture of closeness, right? Yeah. Like people stay, people like their space in Germany. There's not a culture of friendliness and, and intimacy the way there is in Spain and Italy. Right. It's not that Spain and Italy suck. It's not like they're bad at disease mitigation. They have different cultures of of you know friendship closeness and familial closeness and and that's just how they are and it shows up in their flu every single year in their flu epidemics and it's showing up now in COVID it's almost to exactly the same degree yeah and and that has really like I, I think I discovered that in like September and it's. It startles me that people are demanding that, no, it's public policy that makes the difference. When that just, like, I'm really, like, squinting to try to see that, and I don't, right? Yeah. All right, uh, 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 two two questions, uh, uh, and then we will get you out of here. You you mentioned before the idea of... uh, the economy and and uh, everything that kind of goes along with it in terms of public policy and what they can cost. When you look at those by the numbers, 
what what would you be looking at? Are you looking at how many people are leaving the state? Are you looking at tax revenue? Are you looking at uh, uh, you know human costs like suicides or or something like that? Like, is it, what what kind of vectors would 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 people keep their eye on? Um, so suicide and drug overdose are two that people are very concerned about. I I the, from what I can tell, some states will show will do drug overdose on a quarterly basis or monthly basis. Everything that I've seen says that drug overdose deaths are up 20 to 30-ish percent. Okay. Um, so now I have not seen enough of that data to be like, well, it's higher in places with lockdowns and lower in places without. Yeah. Um, it's the lockdowns seem to be pretty ubiquitous across all states in the spring. So we shouldn't expect to see those numbers different, right? Yeah. But now, now we're coming into this place where some states are going to lockdown. Some states are like are saying absolutely no more lockdown. So we should see those numbers change, but we will not know until next year. Like yeah. the suicide, the suicide numbers absolutely are not reliable until they do the nationwide survey, which is gonna, which they do in like March of 2021. So that like that and the drug overdose stuff is something we are not gonna know till after the fact. We're guessing, right? Yeah. I think suicides are up. I've heard they are up 50, 60%, which if true is an insane, there's a lot of suicide in this country. That would be, that would be tens of thousands of people. Right. Um, and, and I think it would be unfair to say, oh, that's strictly based on public policy. Some of it's just based on economic downturn, which is, which is happening everywhere. Right. Yeah. Um, in terms of how policies are responding are, are, are driving some of these negative externalities. I would say um, the first one is closing schools. Uh, I don't think we need any more evidence than what we already have. That closing schools is a bad, bad, bad idea. Um, yeah. It's worse. It's worse than the spread that's happening in them. Um, and, and that's like, that's something that I feel everybody should be on board with by now. Um, everything. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Just, just a, 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 Back of the envelope, can can you give people like some of the, the 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 top line data there in terms of the school thing? Because that that certainly still is a controversial thing. And and you know, last week we we just saw uh, uh, yet another uh, of the, the the great comedy duo of of De Blasio and Cuomo not being able to get on the same page on exactly <laughs> what was happening in New York City uh, when it came to closing down those schools again. Childhood depression is is way up. Um, uh, childhood. Uh, medication is way up. Childhood suicide. The information we have about childhood suicide attempts yeah. are way up. Um, uh, uh, parents leaving the workforce because they can't handle a job and also you know, trying to manage their child from home is way up. Like every every metric that we have that matters um, is to the extent that we can measure it now is bad. Yeah. When kids are when kids are out of school, especially for an extended period of time. And then then there is a, a, a long running epidemiologic. I mean, like decades of epidemiological study that basically says if you have to shut down schools, two weeks is like the max. Like yeah. if there's a raging epidemic and you just have to shut everything down for schools, two weeks, get those kids back in school. Um, yeah. And so these long term school shutdowns are just out of that. That's bad. Right. We're going to see that. Uh, we see it now to a point where we absolutely should be doing something about it. Um, 
and then yeah and then after that it's uh i would say um uh the the one that we can measure quickly is going to be uh unemployment like it yeah. just 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 unemployment numbers are going to be indicative like uh, of uh, uh, it's something we measure well we measure early and it's going to be indicative of things like do I'm like people who are out of work, especially long-term out of work, multiple months are high risk suicide. They yeah. just nothing else, no pandemic, anything else. Long-term unemployment is bad for suicide numbers. And it's bad for drug overdose numbers. Um, it's bad for uh, family stability. Like it was just a, a, there's a laundry list of stuff um, that, that is. And I, 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 I gotta be honest. I have followed uh, I, I actually started my like my Twitter to follow uh, unemployment numbers back in the in 2009 2010 era, right? Yeah, during the Great Recession stuff. So I'm pretty comfortable following that stuff. I really did expect those numbers to be very quickly worse for the unlockdown states and uh, for 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 the lockdown states and better for the unlockdown states. And I was surprised to not see as much as much stark variability um i think that may change we should definitely keep an eye on state numbers which are a month behind the national numbers yeah so uh the state numbers as they come in in december and january because that's going to tell us a whole lot about how um how states are responding or the state economies are responding to lockdowns and I would say more specifically on this particular lockdown, considering we have right. not gotten any more paycheck protection program thing, at least at, at the point that we are recording the, this interview. I, I the, really the paycheck protection stuff, if anybody wanted to if if anybody had wanted to to fix or to, to mitigate this thing that we are in right now, then it should have been the like, quite frankly, I, I, I am inclined to blame the Democrat. I'm, I am a conservative type person, right? Um, but but I like the the fact that the Senate, the Republican Senate, and the Democratic Congress could not come up with anything yeah. in October <laughs> is like if if you wanted to solve this problem, that was the time. Yeah, right. Like, and yeah. it just and and I I think the Democrats didn't want to have anything go through because they didn't want it to look good for Trump. And I think the I, I, and I think the Republicans were just like we're like look, just we, all we're going to accept is base level, um, and I well, you they know couldn't, I mean, they couldn't they couldn't get on the same page in the Senate and and you know just, for, for for whatever reason they found Jesus on on the deficit again which is a, a, a very crazy time to, to figure that one out but uh, uh, all right one one last question yeah. here for you. Something that uh, among the dumbest possible things that I've, I believe have gotten politicized uh, throughout this process is the idea of testing. And when I look mm -hmm. at nationwide testing numbers uh, throughout the world, I think that there should be a big bipartisan uh, agreement that we're doing a lot of testing and that's good. And and yeah. if, if we if we see a lot of numbers that means that we have our eyes open in a way that many other countries do not. Between a free press and the amount of testing that we're doing, we've got a better sense of this than than a lot of folks. Uh, is is that to your eyes as somebody that has studied this internationally true, or or is that just something that that I'm I'm cherry picking my own data? 
if if people were being honest, the United States the United States testing and data collection is the it should be considered the envy of the world. Yeah. Um, we are we are good at this, and we are good at it in a way that is public facing, which I think is important, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Spain and Germany and Italy and I think Great Britain's actually okay, but a lot of the European countries that we consider like major first world countries, their uh, their testing and reporting is really not great, right? Yeah. They're just, just like uh, Spain has a whole bunch of municipalities and they're kind of like in a in a jumbled mess and. And I think Germany actually is doing really well on a municipality level, like cities and towns, but the, but the reporting up from the municipality to the, to the regional and the national levels are just a mess. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and the, the, to the United States credit, I really do think this is to our credit. Um, we have, we decided early on, we do not want hospitals to kick COVID patients to the curb. Right. Yeah. And, to, and to that end, we're going to give them a financial incentive to make sure they catch everybody who has COVID and to make sure that those people are treated. And, and I know people who have said that they think that has led them to over testing and over treating and trying to make sure that everybody gets a good COVID test. And it comes because there is a financial incentive and they're not wrong. There is a financial incentive. On, but, but I don't think that medical professionals, I just I just don't think medical professionals are are tricking people into thinking they have COVID. I, I, I find that fairly ridiculous. Um, uh, but, 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 but we do have good reporting, right? We do, we've got, we're doing a lot of testing. I think we've got good incentives. I think we're doing good reporting. And I think, I think when you dig down into things like, I, you know, I, I've been watching super closely a lot of different states and states do COVID death audits every couple of months. They'll yeah. go through and they'll be like, well, this person tested COVID for death for uh, tested positive for COVID, but he clearly died in a motorcycle accident. Yeah. So take him out, take him yeah. out of the COVID list. They do that. All the states do that. And so I think our, our reporting and testing is, is careful. It's thoughtful. It's thorough and it's public. Yeah. And to, to that end, I think it's honestly, it's hard because we look at the epidemic and we're like, we're getting crushed and that's not wrong. But, but this is a thing we should be proud of as Americans. I think it's it's just it's so confusing and it, it, it like so much just got wrapped up and, and between the bombast of Trump and and the like, oh, well, like, it, it, you know, for as as uh, uh, you know, loud as Big Chungus is and was like the right. him saying we have more cases because we're testing more. It's like we should understand that that even if you don't agree with his larger point that we're like that, this is you know, something that we can sweep under the rug as it oftentimes right. seemed for him. That right. is true. Like we, and He's, by the way, we should, we should. The, 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 the point right. is for the rest of the world. No, if you're closing your eyes and pretending this thing isn't there, that, that is, is a larger problem. That's a problem that we wouldn't want to have compared to knowing where, where these, uh, this is, this is spreading. Right. I, th I think having, having clear data and having a lot of data is the only way that we can make decisions. And, and, you know, and here's the thing that drives me a little bit crazy is like, I think that it, I, I generally don't like lockdowns. I think, but I think that different states are going to take different paths. And I think that's fine. Yeah. Right. Like there, the, you know, maybe, maybe Washington, I mean, with, with the exception of schools, I'm going to be like real dogmatic about schools opening, but with the exception, it may just be that certain people need certain, certain 
population of the United States need their government, their state government to be like, things are really serious now before they, they, they say, oh, yeah. well, things are really serious now. And, and there, are par- there are parts of the country that are going to look at anything the government, their state government does. And if they think it's too, ser- uh, too, too much of an imposition, they're just not going to do it. Yeah. And, but, and when you get to that point, then there's no point in doing it. Right. And so I, I, I am, I am in favor of different, different approaches to this. Um, I generally don't like the real hardcore lockdown. I don't like police wandering around, shutting down parties. Right. Like that strikes me as a little weird. Well, and that's, and that's, yeah, that's, that's another thing where it's like, uh, <laughs> uh, we, we get to the big, the larger question, which is probably a whole nother podcast, but you know, at, <laughs> At what point does law meet enforcement? Like, yeah. and if you're going to have mandates, if you're going to say that these things are closed, like right now, uh, uh, well, this is pre-recorded uh, this interview, but uh, at at this moment uh, in in time while we're while we're recording it, Gavin Newsom here in in the state of California where I'm at has just instituted a uh, lockdown for ten to five, uh, ten p.m. to five a.m. in the morning, and it's like, all right, so you know we're driving back from this little vacation we were on if we get a late start and we're rolling into our, our home <laughs> at 10 30 our you know do right. we need to like start strafing to avoid the cops like is this is this you know i don't know uh hey look I, i'll tell you i i I've already, I've already kept too much of your time so i'm gonna i'm gonna let you go here uh uh, uh matthias shapiro you have a uh, great twitter at polymath p-o-l-y or p-o-l-i-m-a-t-h and a uh, newsletter of the same name on Substack. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's it's always good to talk to people about this stuff. And that'll wrap us up for today. Again, one more thanks to Matthias. Thanks to everybody who wrote into the program. A reminder that you can find our newsletter, the free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. If you have not received it and you've signed up for it, make sure to check your spam folder. We just switched over from MailChimp to Substack. Sometimes that makes things a little kooky in uh, the, the the email clients. So we're going to have to fight the algorithms. We will defeat Alderitos one more time. Just uh, uh, mark it as an email that you want, a, a safe address so we can keep it out of the Google spam filters uh, once and for all. That is freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Let's go ahead and get into our Titanic $10 tier. Uh, Everybody, if you are in this tier, go check your Patreon inboxes because we have a new uh, form so you guys can get your proper nicknames in there. But uh, let's read the, the, the real ones one last time. Catherine, Jason, Paul, Katie, Rob, and vote for Gloria Young 2020 forever. Justin, Lord Generic Frenchman, Martin, Jacob, Alec, Government, Unfiltered, Jerry, Andres, Neil, Archie, Darren, Daily Deck News Show, Paul, Adam, David, Jacob, Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Kyle, Chad, Nomadic, Terran, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, D Laser, uh, Chris, Peter, Ed, the Goose, just another pilot, middle aged Mike, Scale, the Gen, MacBook Pro, 
Leon, Frozen Summers, J-Pink, Andrew, and James. If you want your name on that list, very simple, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And until next week, that'll be it for me at Justin R. Young on Twitter, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young live with our new schedule next week. We will be live uh, in the evenings on Monday and Thursday, in the mornings on Wednesday and Friday. Friday, of course, is our call-in show. But until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more, they talk about politics. But this is the only program that dares talk about all Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.